114 years ago when First Methodist Episcopal Church held their first worship service here. The saints sang. And when seven years later, World War I began, it would take 20 million lives in this very room. The saints sang. church welcome home come on y'all of course not our not our capital H home but the place where we will call home until uh, the Lord sees fit hey if you are a guest today welcome we are um, we're vertical church and there's no one in this uh, world that we would rather have here on this special Sunday with us than you so we count it a great honor and privilege that you came uh, to worship with us this morning well, the most important words in life are first words and final words. Families gather around babies as they coo their first words, and families gather around the same baby after a life well lived for a final farewell. Marriages begin with vows spoken beautifully and end with deathbed I love you's. Even the universe began with Jesus speaking a first word, and this earth will give way to a new one when Jesus utters a final word. The most important words in life are first words and final words. So what should the first words be spoken in this room be? Of course, I could preach on the importance of having a, a permanent presence in this city, 
I could call us to reach the neighborhood now, now that we know who exactly the neighborhood is. I could strategically, I probably should, preach on generosity and take up a offering at the end of this. We're learning, hey, big building equals big bills. We didn't know that. And yet as important as all those things are, they shouldn't be our first words. God, through the Apostle Paul, tells us what our first words should be. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. You guys, our, our first words should be gospel words. When Paul first arrived in Corinth, he said, 1 Corinthians 2, 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So our first words, our, our first words here will be nothing else than Jesus Christ and him crucified. And for those words, open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. Come on now, Revelation uh, chapter 1. In college, a, a brother named Kempton Turner taught me this text. I've never recovered since. It is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. In fact, I, I think I preached this passage about a year and a half ago um, here in this church, but most of us weren't here yet, and if you were like me, you need a refresher. So you're going to need a text before you, Revelation chapter 1, and I'll let you get there. When you're there, say nice and loud, there. Revelation chapter 1, hey, this building's going to wither. This right here is not. Amen? The first words of Revelation chapter 5. The first five words actually tell us what the book's about. See it in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. The word translated revelation here is apocalypsis. It means uh, revealing or unveiling. So the book of Revelation is not primarily about revealing to us what the end of the world is going to be like. It's primarily about revealing to us what Jesus Christ is like. Verse 1, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, that's us, the things that must soon take place, so it is also prophetic. He, that's Jesus, made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Anyone want to be blessed this morning? All right. Then God says, you just keep reading. Our blessing will come through our reading. Let's read very carefully then, verse 4. What's that name? Say that nice and loud. Oh, got to be louder than that. Come on. John. Okay, John was Jesus' best friend on earth. At least six different times he's called the disciple whom Jesus loved. The Roman emperor Domitian com commanded that John be boiled to death in a pot of oil. Side note, oil boils at three times the heat of water. And apparently they threw John in and he only continued to preach from the pot. So they took him out, they forced him to drink poison, it didn't kill him, and it so freaked out Rome that they banished him to an island called Patmos in AD 97. So this is the context, you guys. 
verse 4, John, now an old man, exiled on an island, his flesh probably melted down to the bone, and he's thinking about his best friend. Verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him. Anybody need grace this morning? Anybody need a, a peace this morning? It's going to come from, see it in the text, him who is and who was and who is to come. That's a Greek construction of God's personal name, Yahweh. Yahweh emphasizes God's eternality, so John calls the Father the one who is and was and is to come. So grace and peace, Vertical Church, will come to us through God the Father and, see it in the text, from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now John is referring to the Holy Spirit. Biblically, the number seven signifies perfection and completion. So John isn't saying that the Holy Spirit is actually seven different spirits. He's saying the Holy Spirit is perfect and complete. In fact, the Holy Spirit as the seven spirits goes all the way back to Isaiah 2, which shows us his seven attributes. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So if you are like me, if you need grace this morning, if you need peace this morning, it's being offered to you through the reading of his word from the person of Yahweh, the Father, the Holy Spirit, and now where we're going to spend the bulk of our time, verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Listen, y'all, today, by God's grace, we are taking back some ground for King Jesus. He has called us to occupy Victoria Street, and just like how our building has those gigantic columns out front, those pillars, right now, for our first words, we are going to plant six unshakable, unmovable, ride-or-die pillars on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And the first pillar that we're planting in this new space is this. Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. Okay, what does that even mean? Judging by your response, I don't know if we know what that means. The imagery here is of a courtroom. So what does a faithful witness in a courtroom do? A faithful witness accurately and always reveals the truth. When God says Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, he's saying Jesus is the only one who accurately and always reveals the truth to us. He is utterly truthful. Jesus himself claimed this in John 14, 6, when he says, I am the way, finish it for me, and the life. Or John 18, 37, Jesus says, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Loved ones, this means Jesus alone defines ultimate reality and what he thinks and says is how things truly are. You know, most of us in this room are not asking, do I believe in Jesus? But do I believe Jesus? Are his words true? 
We live in the era of fake news. CNN, Fox News, 2020 was empirical evidence that ain't no one telling us the whole truth, right? Everyone spins, everyone pivots, everyone is biased. No one is telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth except one, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Truth with skin on. And maybe for you, that's where the rub is. You love Jesus you just really struggle with some of the things he says. And if that's you, I just, I want to say gently, loved one, if he is who he said he is, then we must embrace every word because he claimed to be truth in the flesh. So you can't accept Jesus and at the same time reject something that he has said. As C.S. Lewis wrote, quote, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. You see, all of Christianity stands or falls on if Jesus ever said a single untruth. Because he claimed to be truth incarnate, so if that claim, any claim, fails, it all fails. And I just think, guys, it's more than interesting that Jesus' best friend, John, at the end of his life, after living with Jesus for three years, after seeing Jesus die, after seeing him resurrect from the grave and ascend into the heaven, the first thing that comes to John's mind when he thinks about Jesus is he's the faithful witness. He was telling the truth. But not only does the faithful witness reveal truth to us, <laughs> here's what really gets good. Implicit in this title is that he confirms truth back to God. So again, the imagery here is of a courtroom. So, Christian, here's how your judgment is going to go if you are in Christ. You will stand before God, the righteous judge. And someone's going to wheel in all of the sins you committed, all the evil things you ever did. And that's going to be a big cart. And then someone's going to wheel in all of the sins of omission, the righteous things you never got around to doing. And that's going to be a far bigger cart. And you will stand condemned. And then the judge will smile and say, I hear there's a witness. Let me call him to the stand. And Jesus will stand up and say, Judge, I saw their faith. I saw their repentance. There is therefore now no condemnation. Throw out the charges. Court adjourned. That's what it means. And then maybe they'll give each other a high five and come hug you and invite you into eternal life. But listen, the only reason the judge will listen to Jesus, 
to declare you innocent and invite you into his glory is because Jesus is the faithful witness. That's so good, you guys. We could live our entire Christian life on that title alone. But it gets so much better. Look at your text, verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, nice and loud, God's people, what does that say? Firstborn of the dead. It sounds like a zombie movie, doesn't it? Firstborn of the dead, part three. If I start a metal band, we're, we're firstborn of the dead. That's an awesome metal band name. What does it mean? Okay, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that Jesus was the first person raised from the dead. Who can shout out someone who was raised from the dead before Jesus? Lazarus? Come on, what else? We, we always know Lazarus. Yes, yes, yes. We got widow's son at Nain. Um, we've got Jairus' daughter. Jesus was not the first person to raise from the dead. It also doesn't mean that Jesus was the first person, person ever born. Heretics have historically used this passage to teach that Jesus was the first created being and thus not eter- co-eternal with God. The word for firstborn is prototokos, proto, first, right, prototype. Tatakos means, catch this, in rule, rank, and ownership. The phrase firstborn of the dead literally means that Jesus Christ has first or supreme rule, rank, and ownership over death and everyone who has ever died. Guys, I say this all the time. It's time we blow up the notion uh, of the wimpy Jesus who just uh, loves his enemies and speaks softly and sits in green pastures and, and pets baby lammies. Okay, Jesus is tender. But this text says that in the same way you own your cell phone, Jesus owns death. Like for everyone else, it's the opposite. Doesn't matter how much power or money you have, death owns you. Even the most powerful people. Julius Caesar's dead. Constantine's dead. Alexander the Great is Alexander the dead. Lincoln's dead. Rockefeller's dead. Einstein dead. Kennedy dead. And one day LeBron has to die. Do you know this? Kanye has to die. He doesn't think so. Right? Everyone has to die. Death owns you. Death owns us all. Can I just confess something? Is this a safe place for the pastor to confess something? Okay. So I played high school. I played football in high school, and I was really bad. I was 220 pounds, almost pure muscle, and I played punter. Okay? That's a... that's how bad, uh, you're supposed to be agile and mobile and hostile, and I was kind of fragile, all right? So they put me, they made me the punter. So I was a below average football player, but I was an above average trash talker. My thing was I love to shout from the sidelines, game over, baby, we own you, right? And then, and then the crowd gets out, and they start chanting. They pull out their keys, and they go, um, let me grab my keys here. They would say, what? Start the bus. Do it with me. Ready? Start the bus. Start the bus. I I just love that. Brings it right back to high school. All right. Are you in your text? Look over to verse 17. Revelation 1, verse 17. Jesus says, fear not, 
I am the first and the last, verse 18, and the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Guys, that's triumphant trash talk. That is holy swagger. That's Jesus saying, game over, death. I own you. I have your keys. Start the bus. And here's where it gets really good. This is why I'm shouting, because when you have faith in Christ, miracle of miracles, not only does Jesus have victory over death, you have it. It's why we just sang it. 1 Corinthians 15, 55, Paul says, this is triumphant trash talk, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But catch this, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. I know this is crazy talk. I know it's hard to believe, but Christians don't die, ever. We go from life to capital L life, not a moment in between. Because Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. If you're lying on a peaceful deathbed or if you are in a crumpled car in the ditch, Christian, you trash talk death. When it comes to your doorstep, oh death, where's your victory? Oh death, where's your sting? It's gone. Jesus took it, so get on your knees, slave, and take me to the place my heart has always longed to be. Christian, because Jesus is the prototokos, the firstborn of the dead, death has only two options for you. It can leave you alone so you can enjoy Jesus, or it can take you home so you can enjoy Jesus. Hey, death, checkmate. All because Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. We just need to plant that pillar right here this morning. We're planting these pillars. Jesus is the faithful witness. Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, but it gets so much better. Look at verse 5. Verse 5, here's a third title. And the ruler of kings on earth. Pillar 3, what are we planting? Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth. This means Jesus is the sovereign and supreme ruler over all governments and gods, powers and peoples, offices and officials. King Jesus is the supreme ruler of all peoples at all times, in all places, now and forever. Revelation 17, 14 says, they will make war on the lamb, that's Jesus, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. So again, I know this can just be theological often, maybe just theoretical, so real talk, who are the most feared and powerful world leaders right now? Kim Jong-un, supreme leader of, the Nor of North Korea, someone who has an estimated 70,000 Christians working in labor camps this very morning. Kim Jong-un will melt the moment he sees Jesus. Vladimir Putin, Russia's president who has committed countless crimes against humanity and who loves to portray himself as the embodiment of strength and fearlessness. Putin will pass out when he sees the garment of Jesus Christ. 
Xi Jinping, president of China, and someone who is actively oppressing over a billion people and has over one and a half million people in internment camps right now. Xi Jinping will beg for mountains to crush him so he can hide from his face. Philippians 2.9, we sang it. Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on Jesus the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So your boss will bow. Your neighbor will bow. Your family members, every single one of them, will bow and you will bow. You can bow now willingly and receive mercy or you can bow forcefully later and receive wrath but make no mistake everyone will bow before the ruler of the kings of earth have you bowed yet why not today do you know that when you bow he doesn't give you a cold shoulder and say i told you so the Bible says that he will run to you while you're far off, and before you say a word, he embraces you and throws a party in heaven over your repentance. So if you hear nothing else this morning, I'm begging you, before you get back into your ca- car, bow before the ruler of the kings on earth. So who is Jesus? What pillars are we planting? What are our first things first? Well, he's the faithful witness, the one who reveals truth. He's the firstborn of the dead, the one who owns death. And he's the ruler of kings on earth, the one who rules over everyone at all times, today and forever. Those are the three pillars we're planting on the person of Christ this morning. And we could go home right now, and because of who Jesus is, That is enough to eternally satisfy our souls. But the text doesn't stop there. Now it moves to three things that Jesus has done. See it in verse 5. And the ruler of kings on earth. What does that say? Really loud. Come on. Oh, it's so weak. Come on. Yes. Three things that Jesus has done. Pillar one, Jesus loves us. I realize that this seems like old news, but listen, now with freshly ears, because I think God wants to reawaken us to the beauty of his love. Not only was I not a great football player, growing up I could barely read. I shared this a couple weeks ago. I was hooked on phonics until I was like 10 years old. I hated grammar. But in the Bible, listen, grammar will change your life, literally. Grammar changes everything. Notice the grammar. To him who loves us it's not past tense i mean frankly i don't really doesn't help me out if he loved me in the past i've sinned since the past i have present tense sin so does he love me present tense revelation 1 5 says resoundingly yes guys this is the only place in the new testament where the word love agape is in the present continuous tense So present continuous means Jesus is loving us. Jesus is loving us right now with nonstop, constant, 
ongoing, never-ending, always-enduring, permanent, present-tense love, even in our mess. So Christian, when you feel furthest from God, Jesus is loving you present-tense. While you are looking at pornography, Jesus is loving you present tense. When you don't feel like reading your Bible, Jesus is loving you present tense. When you do that thing you promised yourself you would never do again, Jesus is loving you. When you feel most dirty and most broken and most unlovable, Jesus is loving you in that present moment and every moment to come. Jesus' love for us will never run out or grow cold. Not an hour from now, not next month, not next year. 70 trillion years from this morning, Jesus will still be loving you with radical, radiant, present tense, ever-continuing love. Why? Verse 5. It's present, continuous love. Praise God. So what, what did that love cause him to do? See it. See it in verse 5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. I've preached this several times in different contexts. I've always preached this passage wrong. I've always said, how does Jesus love us who are sinners? You and I who are wicked to the core. How does Jesus love us? Well, he loves us because... See it in the text. He has freed us from our sins by his blood. That's wrong, guys. That is wrong. He has freed us from our sins because he loves us. The love comes first. He didn't clean you up so that he could love you. He loved you, and so he cleaned you up. He loved the sinful you, the unrehabilitated you. He loved you first. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Romans 5, 18, God demonstrated his love towards us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You've got to know that. God loves us first, and that motivated him. Verse 2, or point 2, to free us from our sins by his blood. Oh, that's a pillar we need to plant right here. Jesus has freed us from our sins by his blood. Hey, what tense is the word free in? Can you see that? Past tense. (laughs) Freed. This verse says your freedom, Christian, has already occurred. But but I still sin. How can verse 5 talk about my sin in the past tense? How can it talk about my freedom in the past tense? Well, let me give you three P's for how Jesus has freed us from our sins. The first one is this, penalty. If you're taking notes, penalty. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, you will never, ever, ever be punished for any sin you have committed, are currently committing, or will yet commit. This means you will never get what you deserve. Psalm 103, verse 10, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. How is that possible? How is it possible that that he still loves me? Verse 5, 
see it. He has freed us from our sins right here by his blood. Guys, his blood. His blood is the key. His blood is the atonement. His blood is the sacrifice that, that transfers all of your sins onto the shoulders of Jesus Christ, and catch this, and transfers all, listen, all God's righteousness on the soul of repenting you. Guys, by his blood, you are free. If you're a believer, and if you believe your only hope of standing righteous before God is Jesus' blood, then the verdict has already been read over your life today and forever, past tense. You are freed from the penalty of your sin. But not only are we who are in Christ Jesus freed from the penalty of sin, we're also freed from the, if you're taking notes, power of sin. This comes from 1 Peter 2, 24. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So his blood doesn't just bring us into heaven. Jesus' blood breaks the chains that keep us in bondage to sin, progressively, link by link. Theologians call it sanctification, and it means that you can look into the face of your favorite sin, and this is so radical, and say no. Now we're Roman 7 people, so we will continue to fall and fail, and for every again of sin, there will be another again of mercy. But here's what Satan doesn't want you to know. Jesus has destroyed your favorite sin's dominion over you. So you can actually say no. If you are in Christ, you can actually look at lust and pornography and say, no, no, not this time. Been down that road too many times. No, Jesus has destroyed your power over me at the cross. I am free. You can actually say if you are in Christ, you can look at your anger or your anxiety, or your laziness, or fill in the blank and say, no, 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 not this time. Jesus' blood has broken my bondage to you. Jesus has destroyed your power over me. He is my Lord. You're not. He has dominion over my life. You don't. I choose him. I choose life. Revelation 1.5 means that everyone who is trusting in the blood, Jesus' blood, are free right now, even if it doesn't feel like it. Even if you have all kinds of inner condemnation, you're free from the penalty of sin right now. You're free from the power of sin right now. And soon, third P, we're going to be free from the presence of sin. Guys, don't you just ache for that? One of the ways you can know you're a true Christian is if there was a button that you could push to never sin again, would you push it? The unbeliever will not part with their sin. They love it. They love the darkness. They hate the light. But if the Spirit of God is in you, you would hop on any plane you need to hop on. You would travel to any part of the world you need to travel and push that button. Just imagine, guys. Imagine what it's going to be like to never sin again. Ever. 
Like to never love stuff over the Savior again. To never have to even fight a lustful thought again. To never have to battle with depression again. To never feel even a split second of anger or discouragement or fear or pride. Guys, just imagine what it will be like to enjoy Jesus with a new body on a new earth under new heavens with no sin. Well, because of this verse, we won't have to just imagine it for much longer. Soon we will have forever to enjoy and experience this firsthand because he has freed us from our sins by his blood. I don't know how it's possible. It still gets better one more time. Look at verse 6. Verse 6, and I just love the word and. It is a gospel word. From his fullness we have received grace upon grace. So there's always another and of grace. See this. And made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. So not only does the faithful witness love us with always present, ever continuing, permanent love, Not only has the firstborn of the dead freed us from the penalty of sin and the power of sin and soon the presence of sin. Verse 6 says, The ruler of kings on earth has made us a kingdom. Kingdom of what? Priests. Pillar 3, we're planting this this morning. Jesus has made us a kingdom of priests. In the Old Testament, if you were a priest, it meant you were given the highest relational privilege to God. The priests were in charge of worshiping God. They offered the sacrifices. They interceded for the people. But but do you remember the highest privilege of the Old Testament priest? The high priest got to go into the Holy of Holies, the personal presence of God. One day a year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter into the holy presence of God. Yahweh himself. Some scholars believe that they would actually tie a rope around the priest's ankle in case God struck him dead. Someone could then recover his body. It was a terrifying thing to enter the personal presence of a holy God. One of my favorite pictures is this picture of President Kennedy clapping at his daughter Caroline and John Jr. as they play around him and you can see they're in the oval office it's arguably the most powerful place in the entire world this is the place where the most powerful man makes the most powerful decisions for the most powerful country on earth this room has secret service everywhere bulletproof windows and doors and and if you were asked to go into the oval office you'd be told stand up straight get right to the point the president is a very busy man You can't dance in the Oval Office. You can't go in there and play in the Oval Office. Guys, you can't act like a kid in the Oval Office unless unless you're his kid. If you're his kid, then you can walk in there and you can dance. You don't have to stand up straight. You can play. You can be fully you. Why? Because, yeah, he's the president, but more than that, he's your dad. And just look at Kennedy. 
clapping, smiling. Zephaniah 3.17 The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will sing over you with loud singing. Today we get to enter and every week right here and every moment of every day we get to enter the holy of holies, the personal presence of Yahweh God like that because Jesus loves us present tense because he has freed us from our sins past tense by his blood and because he has made us right now priests to God himself you can enter in you can be fully you you can enjoy the presence of your father because of Jesus who he is and what he has done So guys, how do we respond to this? Well, look at verse 6. Let's see how John does. Verse 6, at the very end, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. As John is writing these words, he's so overcome with joy that he writes a little doxology, just a single sentence, a little worship song. In other words, he, he, he stops writing and he begins worshiping. And that's how we respond to this passage. I don't know what you're currently walking through. I don't know. I couldn't possibly know all the things on all the hearts in this room. I don't know what story you're trying to write with your life. But the way we respond to verses 4, 5, and 6 is we put down the pen and we stop writing and we just worship Jesus Christ.